Lewis, your host for Taiwan Talk. This week, we continue our monthly look at Taiwan in Time. Taiwan in Time is a column about Taiwan's history that is published every Sunday and spotlights important or interesting events around the nation that have anniversaries that particular week. It is written by Taipei Times features reporter Han Cheng, who we'll be talking to today. Han, how's it going? Um, pretty good, pretty good. Having a pretty busy month. Yeah, man, you had. Uh, we're going to go through five articles uh, for this. Yeah, episode. there were five uh, five weeks in October. So yeah, man, that's uh, to do. that's pretty rare, I guess. But five weeks in a month. Uh, but let's get into it. Um, so let's first okay. we're going to talk about the Great Aboriginal Migration. This is October first yeah. to October seventh. Yeah, it was like a mass migration of like you know early day Aboriginal people. They were forced out of um, the original homelands by like the Han Chinese settlers and. Uh, but this one was interesting because there was uh, an incident called the Gulbainian incident, and that led to destruction of uh, the aborigines around Puli area. So basically, the government stepped in. This was Qing Dynasty. So the government stepped in and chased away the Han Chinese and prevented anybody from like going into the aboriginal areas again. But they were so weakened by the uh, ordeal that they had to invite other aborigines the Pingpu, so they call them like Plains Aborigines now, and they had to invite them to settle there from the West Coast where they were also facing pressure uh, to bolster their numbers, and they ended up getting like assimilated in the end, so that was pretty... Yeah, so they invited them to their homeland, and then uh, they kind of lost uh, their culture because there were just so many, uh, I guess, uh, uh, immigrants coming to the area. Yeah, they, they, they were like thousands. It came in like many waves. So I thought I thought that was pretty interesting. I mean, I've heard of uh, and these like the descendants of these tribes are still there, which is interesting because a lot of them have been wiped out in their original or assimilated in their original homeland, but they were able to survive because they moved to Puli. And uh, there are six tribes that are that can still that still have their presence in that area, and they have been making a lot of noise um, of late. Um, they want because they're not recognized by the government, so they want recognition. Oh, I see. Can you talk a little bit about the circumstances that led to uh, them inviting the tribes from the western coast to their land? So there was like a Guobainian incident. So basically, the Han Chinese were running out of land, and so they were looking at um, you know like the lands beyond. Because um, uh, the Qing Dynasty had um, pretty clear boundaries, um, so this was Aboriginal land and this was Han Chinese. You can't go past this point because they didn't want any conflict, and they didn't. And there were a lot of Han Chinese rebellions, so they they really didn't want them to gain access to the mountain lands, so they could like you know do guerrilla tactics and like stuff like that. But basically, this guy um, they hatched this plan and they got. It were able to obtain a permit to go settle that area. And once they were in, they like went crazy and they just started like killing everybody and taking all the land. And then finally, they uh, encountered this tribe that was strong enough to uh, resist them. So they kind of tricked them. They told them if they gave them antlers, they would leave the area. So the dudes went to look for antlers. And during that time, they invaded the village. 
And then when the Qing Empire, they send people to investigate, they just bribe them off. So it took them about two years to find out what's going on. And by then, they had been greatly weakened. So after the Han Chinese were kicked out, they needed help. So they thought it would be a good idea to invite these uh, other tribes from the uh, western coast to settle there. But those were pretty uh, assimilated already as... um, Evidenced by like the signing of contracts and like all that kind of stuff, because that that was not in their original culture. So. Yeah. Okay. So what happened to the guy? It sounds like he was a piece of work. Um, the guy who spearheaded, uh, you know, like the inroads into the Aboriginal lands. Yeah, Whatever yeah, happened yeah. to him? So they, uh, so the the government evacuated all of them, and you know, like he got off by he was sentenced to a beating, and then they 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 kind of prevented any uh, non-Aborigines from, like, entering the area um, for another hundred, like, for almost, like, another century. So they were able to preserve their culture um, for longer. So that's why they, those people there still trace their identity back to these um, original tribes. Yeah, okay. Well, I hope you got a really good yeah. beating. Yeah, sounds like a piece of work. Yeah, I hope so. That's messed up, dude. Um, uh, actually, there's something interesting about this one. It's, it's yeah, well, tell me what's interesting about it. Yeah, it's actually because there, there's no really timeline to this story because I, I wanted to write about it somehow. Um, so I actually came out of, uh, I went to this Taokas, uh, so it's like Taokas tribe and Miaoli, uh, uh-huh. and they are, they have, they're, they were having um, like a harvest festival kind of thing. So I went, and they're part of the people who are fighting for their identity, and they were talking about how they had to suppress their identity for so long. And um, and these are the people, they're still in Miaoli, but they, they talk of a branch of the same people who migrated to Puli, which is what this story is talking about. And I met, actually met someone at the festival who traveled from Puli to uh, Miaoli to take part in the festival. So... And it's not a short distance, so I started wondering, like, how this tribe got separated so um, so far. So I started looking into it, and that's that's how I, uh, that's how this this article came about. Oh, interesting! So kind of just yeah. uh, out of your life here in Taiwan, you kind of looked back. And pretty saw much, this pretty much, yeah. And the Taukas is one of the tribes that are in Puli. Are one of the six tribes? Yeah, one of the six tribes. So I, I found it really. Yeah, interesting. I was just looking into it, and I found this huge, uh, you know, backstory. Yeah, that's really cool. Some of the best stories if you just kind of look in your life and dig (laughs) around. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm trying to do that more with my articles now, because I've been doing this for three years, and I'm kind of running out of, uh, you know, dates to... (laughs) I can uh, imagine, man. ...too, but there's still so much about Taiwanese history that um, you, know, you, can, you can find using different methodologies according to, like, current events or, like, you know, things like that. And there's another one this month that I did the same thing with that uh, we'll, we'll be talking about later. Is it about the uh, Itatau tribe? Yeah, that one, no. Okay, let's talk about that now. Maybe. Yeah, felt like, you know, that's really connected to the one we just talked about. Uh, October 15th, October 21st, and it's, uh, the title is A Community That Needed to Change. So this is, um, so that's also about, like, oppression of Aborigines by, like, different colonial powers. So it's really connected to the last one. And this is also based on a current event. Like, as I was reading the 
I was reading the Taipei Times, and then um, there was a story about this tribe who really wanted to change their name. Uh, they had like they were the Tao people, Shaozhu, but they had um, so they a lot of things in the area were called the Hua, which means you know like changing through virtue. So it was kind of like the idea that these were uncivilized people that needed to be, you know, needed like the majority, the rulers to. Um, show virtue and compassion and kind of like in order to civilize them. So I see. Yeah, so like it's like they, they needed they needed to change. Right, right, right. So they hated that name. So they they really wanted to change it. And um, and the week before I wrote that story, they had just successfully changed the name of the local police station from Dehua to Itatao. So that got me like you know looking into you know why do I hate this name so much? What's going on? And it turns out that they, because they are, they're in Sun Moon Lake, so they're kind of remote, but not too remote. So they were kind of in between. And uh, so back then in the Qing Dynasty, they they separated the aborigines into like, you know, like civilized ones and non-civilized ones. And the non-civilized ones, they really, basically like how how assimilated they were. Um so this story just kind of talks about the history of from from the Qing Dynasty when they sent when they like built a Chinese style academy on their sacred island to like educate the people, and then to the Japanese times where they were trying to do the same, and they even like submerged their sacred island to build like the Semun Lake Dam, and then the KMT came and then you know like did the same thing and they even changed all their names like original names so like the island they called it Guanghua which is like glory to Chinese or something like that so they, that's that's why it just uh, and they only like in recent after 2000 um, where they they started to change all of this back to the original names I see. Yeah, so they kind of went from colonizer to colonizer, uh, uh, oppressive act to oppressive act, and now they're trying to fight back, more specifically just for their name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's relevant because it's, it's still going on. I mean, the, their next step is to change the, I think, the elementary school name, because uh, that's also the Hua so. Has that name changed? Um, not yet. That's, that's their next goal. They changed the village name first. And then they changed the police station, mm-hmm. and I think they're going to try to. So they're slowly uh, eradicating all this uh, you know, the past trauma. It's still going on, and uh, I think it's a, it's a good thing. And they're 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 fighting for this. It's been too long. It's been um, more than two hundred years of being oppressed and being told that they need to you know like, be civilized and be changed and. Uh, so hence the the title name. A community that needs to change. Like someone just comes in and keeps telling you, you know, you, you gotta you gotta be like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, well yeah, let's uh, let's go to the next uh, article, where the one that was from October eighth to October fourteenth, the five okay. lights to stardom. I found this one really interesting because the most modern one. So it's uh, talking about the launch of the uh, the Five Lights Award that ran for thirty three years on television. Yeah, yeah. So it was launched on October ninth, nineteen sixty five, and ran for thirty three years until uh, nineteen ninety eight. So um, and it's, a, it's it was called the Five Lights Awards Wuzhengjiang, and it was pretty much like a talent show, you know, like singing, dancing, like 
all kinds of all kinds of. I mean, the main thing was singing, but they also have like other challenges. Yeah, you kind of see uh, it right now, like in modern times, right? There's American Idol, but also like The Voice, America's Got Talent, X Factor. There's a whole bunch right, of right, right, yeah, yeah shows there's, right there's, now. Yeah, there's all all that. So basically, that was kind of Taiwan's first um, you know talent show competition. And, um, yeah, ran for 33 years. It was really popular. I watched it when I was little. Um, but, you know, I never knew about the origins of it and why it was called The Five Lights. And I think that was the most interesting. Was um, It was actually started by a pharmaceutical company who wanted to promote its brand. And its logo had five circles. So they decided to turn the five circles into five lights. That's how it got started, and um, yeah, it just kept going on and on, but soon, I think later, it was being overtaken by a lot of different shows, but uh, a lot of famous people, like Zhang Hui Mei. Yeah, uh, Ame, right? Yeah, Ame. And then Jackie Wu came out of that show, LA Boys, like a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of, um, yeah, quite a few people made it big through that show, which is not unlike today. They they still um the singing contest it's still popular. It's it's it hasn't gone like the show's gone away, but people still like watching that stuff. Yeah, that's really cool. Um was it kind of like a cultural touchstone of its time? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. And then uh it kinda that paved the way for like modern shows today too, even though the show itself didn't survive. Um yeah, and it spawned a lot of different knockoffs too. Like the other channel did a six lights award. And, uh, yeah, I couldn't put that into the article, but I thought that was uh, that was pretty interesting. And they still bring it back every now and then, like in movies or like during New Year celebration. They'll make a they'll make a mock stage with five lights, and um, it's been brought back. Like uh, I think every now and then they'll do like a special or something and try to like revisit it. So it's kind of like a really important cultural memory uh, that everybody is kind of familiar with because it ran for so long. So even though it ended in 1998, a lot of young people was undoubtedly still know about it. Yeah, and it's a perfect show for Taiwan because um, for the love of karaoke here, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it, And in the beginning, actually, I think it was the audience who was going on and performing. I think that was interesting because like anybody could go on there and be a star. I think it's later that it turned into a more strict uh, audition process, like like the you know X Factor and American Idol. Okay, yeah, that's awesome. And finally, the last two articles that you wrote were about Chiang Kai Shek and yeah. uh, the military. So let's start yeah. from the October twenty second to the October twenty eighth one. Uh, how the okay. great victory was won. Yeah, uh, so that one was uh, about the Battle of Guangdong. And for a long time, it was called Guanyinto Dajie, which is the great victory of Guanyinto, because it was pretty much the only victory that the KMT had at the um, against the communists at the end of the Chinese Civil War. So they were they were on the brink of being kicked out of China, like they were they, they were almost gone. And um, the communists decided to invade Jingmen, and somehow the KMT fought them off. And a lot of historians say that this actually stopped the invasion to Taiwan because they were going to planning on taking Jingmen, and obviously the next uh, target would be Taiwan because that's like the next across, but that's right across the strait from Jingmen. So, and then the Americans, you know, got 
Korean War broke out. And a lot of things happened. It wasn't just because of this battle, but this battle kind of stopped and like kind of gave uh, Bot KMT some time and actually led to, you know, the communists never coming to Taiwan. Um, so it's a pretty significant, it's, it's not significant to the communists because it's just such a tiny war, tiny battle compared to all the big ones they fought in China. But like to the KMT, it was really important. And they actually saw the war as like a turning point in the Chinese Civil War. They were like, yeah, now we can rally and beat the communists. Well, that never happened. But um, I, would, I would say if I were the KMT, I'd be pretty proud of that. Yeah, it's a battle that turned the tides. Um, yeah, yeah. Could you give us a few, uh, uh, I guess, reasons or takes as to why or how they won the battle? Yeah, there uh, there were quite a few takes. Like, uh, I think a big part of it was just timing. Yeah, the communists got there, and then um, I think they 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 uh, they their departure got delayed a lot because they if they attacked earlier when they um, it might have been different, but they. It, they kind of kept delaying because they were like trying to get boats and stuff like that, and then that gave the KMT time to like bolster the defenses on the island. And they sent a couple groups from southern China to Jingmen to defend it, and uh, Hulian led his brigade there, and uh, yeah, that pretty much um, you know they they were well prepared. I think that was the that was the biggest thing, and the communists were were careless because they were winning so much they didn't think they would this would be a problem and they they acknowledged that actually um even the chinese i, I read a chinese account on it and they acknowledged the same thing the kmt were, were i mean there were a lot of coincidences like uh the communists were doing a secret landing and there was a kmt's patrolman by the shore where they were landing, and he actually stepped on a landmine, and that caused panic, and they started looking in that direction, and they found the troops landing. So, I mean, they were lucky in a lot of ways, but um, they were just more prepared than the enemy was. Was this one of uh, Chiang Kai-shek's uh, biggest bat- uh, victories in the war? Um, like, yeah, I, I, I think I would, I would say so, like, at least in the last part of the war. Because um, that whole year they had been losing after losing the the Shu Bang Huizhen in China, and then the communists uh, crossed the Yangtze River in January that year, and they they pretty much didn't win anything after that. Um, what's interesting about this story is after I had three people message me telling me that they had a relative who uh, served or was like caught in that war. Um, so yeah, my friend had an aunt or, or grandmother, a grandmother who served as a nurse in that war, and my other friend's dad was like eight years old when that happened, and they actually eventually fled Jingmen for Singapore, uh, which is where they still live. So, so there was a lot of uh, yeah, uh, there were quite a few responses. Yeah, you kind of don't really think about the fallout of a of a victory even in in war. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, then, and then after that, Jingmen was just a war zone. He's all the way into the 90s, pretty much. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm. All right, so uh, progressing on, we're going to talk about the last article that you wrote for the month of October, the uh, military advice from the mm-hmm. former enemy. Yeah. So this one I found really interesting, um, actually. 
um, because it was Chiang Kai-shek actually recruited all these Japanese officers after the war, World War II, to come to Taiwan and serve as military advisors. And I'm like, didn't he fight against the Japanese for like so many years? Yeah, he years did. And, he totally did. Um, he, yeah, there was like this uh, 1938, I looked it up, and uh, so this is like one of the biggest acts of uh, environmental warfare that ever happened in history, right? So like Jen- uh, right. Chiang Kai-shek um, released like dams to uh, kind of stop the Japanese troops in like the second Sino-Japanese war. And uh, it caused like so much devastation right, uh, right. in China. So um, yeah. yeah, when I read this article, I was kind of sh- surprised or kind of just uh, amazed at how, you know, things change in just like, you know, years. Right, right. Yeah. And at that time, like, I think his enemy was always the communists. Like, he kind of, yeah, saw the communists as the number one enemy. So um, it, it wasn't beyond them to ask for Japanese help to, you know, fight the communists and try to retake China, which never happened. But that was his goal. So I was, I, I was curious, like, why, why though? Like, why, why Japanese in particular? So we kind of looked at his motives. And, you know, he was actually trained in Japan. He um, went to military school in Japan and served in the Japanese army before uh, returning to China to uh, help, you know, overthrow the Qing dynasty. And, you know, he was, um, he was actually really impressed by, you know, like the discipline of the Japanese army and their training and, uh, how successful they were, you know, throughout the first half of the 1900s and even before when they were able to beat the Russians and, you know, like all. Um, and they were pretty successful. So um, he was pretty, so he he wanted to know, like, why they were so disciplined and, like, things like that. So, uh, and then... Yeah, he, he just believed that military education was like a main difference between the strength of the Japanese army and his army. And uh, so that was always in his head. So, and by the end, by that time, defeating the communists was his one and only priority. So he, eh, working with the former enemy didn't really, didn't seem to really bother him. Yeah, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. So under the pretext of anti-communism he secretly recruited all these like Japanese officers to Taiwan they were I think they were about uh, 14 in the first batch and this number grew to um, I think it grew quite a bit for the first couple of years but um, but it kind of like fell apart at the end and by like 1968 there was like one dude left in Taiwan and uh, and the rest kind of just went back to time. I uh, went back to Japan over time, um, but this uh, article doesn't really talk about what they actually did in in, um, in Taiwan. Taiwan. Yeah, what did they yeah, actually they, do? So they, they were mostly involved in training um, and organizing like different um, military groups and partnerships. Uh, but most of it was training. They were known as very strict um, military instructors and. Um, so that, that's mostly what they did. They actually went to the front lines for you know, the 823 uh, artillery bombardment on Um So they, yeah, but they were mostly in a like advisory role. 
Yeah, but I, I thought it was, um, yeah, I couldn't cover that in the article, but it was, uh, uh, the more interesting part to me was, like, the formation of this group and how did this even happen? Um, apparently, uh, they had to do it all secretly because otherwise uh, Americans wouldn't like that. Oh yeah, that's right. This is right after World War. <laughs> it was right after World War. Like, um, this was November one, nineteen forty nine, when the first guy arrived in Taiwan, and that was even before Chang like permanently retreated to Taiwan. So yeah, he he wasted no time. But I might visit, uh, revisit um, what they actually did in Taiwan. Yeah, you just have to wait uh, one year, year, right? Yeah, I have to wait one year, or I can find another <laughs> way to put it in. Uh, we'll see. Okay, so what's the next month looking like for you? Next month, um, let's see. Uh, I actually haven't decided yet, because it's still Wednesday. Okay, what are you doing in your social life? Because it seems that your social life might indicate uh, what might be written about in your articles. Oh, yeah, that's true. No plans yet, huh? Nothing big, nothing big, nothing big going on, actually. But if I run across anything, I'm definitely going to write about it. Thank you to Han for coming on the show, and thank you for listening to Taiwan Talk. I'm Alex Lewis. (laughs) 